Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Our gospel reading today is sometimes referred to as the travel narrative, or as one writer called it, the hike of hikes. This is because Jesus' time in Galilee is finished, and it's time for him to, as the Urban Dictionary describes it, get a steppin', meaning to leave or to get moving. Or using the Greek verb por ulemai, it means to go. We're told right away in the opening verses of this morning's gospel reading, there's a new destination, and that destination is called Jerusalem. I want to invite you to open your bulletins and read with me from Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And as you open your bulletins, a couple things to note as we look at Jesus' life through the lens of Luke's gospel. The first is this. In the beginning of the first eight chapters, Luke focuses on answering the question, who is Jesus? But when we get to chapters 9, verses 51, there's this pivotal moment in which things begin to switch and Jesus goes to work answering the sobering reality of what it means to follow him and what it means to be his disciple. The second thing I want you to note is this. Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem is not an immediate route. What I mean by this is this. It's easy to read verse 51 and think that the journey is, a short, is short to Jerusalem. But but we must keep in mind, we're still 10 chapters away, numerous towns, numerous dinner tables, and lots of teachings still sit between this introduction and the journey and its final completion. Now let's look at Luke Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It reads, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. To understand exactly what Luke meant when Jesus said to set his face to go to Jerusalem. We have to answer the question, why does Jesus even have to go to Jerusalem? In Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and verse 31, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem in reference to the transfiguration. Luke 18, verse 31 says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written of the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. Jesus speaking about his future in Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, it writes, He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. You see, basically what Luke is saying to us, the readers, is first, it's important for us to understand that from this moment on, we're going to be seeing Jesus journeying to his goal, which isn't just geographical, but it's also going to be a place in which he will fulfill and accomplish these things, which is for our salvation. 
The second thing to note is that this journey isn't some random accidental afterthought put together with shoestrings and bubblegum. This has been written, planned, and prophesied about for centuries, and it's about to be fulfilled through Jesus once he gets to Jerusalem. And third, when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he sets his face to be tortured, humiliated, and eventually die. But his unwavering obedience through his crucifixion and resurrection in Jerusalem will ultimately fulfill God's promise through him. Now, having said all that, I also want to mention, like most of us who are tasked with preaching from this pulpit, today's sermon text is a little like standing in front of the Amish donut trailer on Saturday morning and thinking to oneself, which was last or yesterday, so many choices, so little time. So for the sake of time, I've chosen to preach mainly from the small fried cake of sweetened dough found in verses 51 through 56. Now, with that ridiculous statement out of the way, let me share what I consider to be three moments or episodes within our gospel text that I want to draw your attention to. They are an unwavering Messiah, a reckless response, and finally, sick beats by Jesus and some random artist named Taylor Swift. Let me talk about an unwavering Messiah. One of the things that I find really powerful from our gospel reading this morning is that Jesus does not waver in his resolve to go to Jerusalem in spite of the fate that awaits him there. Let me say that again. Jesus does not waver in his resolve to go to Jerusalem in spite of the fate that awaits him there. When Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, he is without a doubt stoic, unmovable, determined, faithful, steady, and unwavering. I mean, sadly, I can't even order food at a restaurant without being indecisive, unsure, delayed, questioning, or regretful. We sit down at a restaurant, the waitress gives us our menu, and I begin to say, I don't know, should I get this? What do you guys think? And then I proceed to ask the waitress after I've ordered, can I change my order? My family always says it's seriously painful to watch you order sometimes when we go out to a restaurant. So when looking at Jesus as the unwavering Messiah, I'm, unre- I'm immediately reminded of Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, and the temptation of Jesus, where Luke says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, which just that, that little bit right there is mind-blowing to understand or even comprehend. And he said to him, to you, I will give you all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. This interaction between Jesus and the devil is basically him trying to get Jesus to waver and ultimately to thwart Jesus from going to the cross, which Jesus came specifically to endure. He's basically saying to Jesus, listen, Jesus. Forget the cross nonsense. I have an easier way, and it involves avoiding all the suffering God has planned for you. True story. You may or may not know this about me, but I'm going to confess. I'm extremely unmotivated when it comes to working out, or for that matter, any kind of exercise. You've heard the saying, no pain, no gain. 
My specific goal in life is com the complete opposite. Mine is gain without the pain, baby. Don't believe me? Has anybody ever heard of the shake weight? <laughs> if you're not familiar with the shake weight, the product is basically a dumbbells, a dumbbell whose ends are attached by a handle by a spring, propelled into the mainstream by a series of easily misinterpreted TV commercials of attractive women shaking the weight. The product claims to tone the arms and shoulders of people who use it without ever having to work hard and eliminate the pain of working out. Don't believe me? I have one. <laughs> What's scary or terrifying about this is I'm not sure that it's that I own one of these or the fact that this has sold over 4 million of them. This may be a bit harsh, but I think some Christians or excuse me, I think some Christians' uh, view of following Jesus is a little bit like that shake weight. They want to have the gain without the pain. Pastor and author uh, John Piper said this about that same thing. One might be tempted to reason that since Jesus suffered so much and died in our place, therefore we are free to go straight to the head of the class. As it were, and skip all the exams. He suffered so we could have comfort. He died so we could live. He bore abuse so we could be esteemed. He gave up the treasures of heaven so we could lay up treasures on earth. He, brought, he bought the kingdom and paid for our entrance, and now we live in it with all its earthly privileges. However, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying when he says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and daily follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake, he will save it. So that's something about an unwavering Messiah. The second moment or episode within the text is what I call a reckless response. We're told in verse 52 and 54 that Jesus will not be alone on his journey. He will have two of his closest friends, James and John, to accompany him along the way. Frankly, to me, this is a little like asking your children in order to give you a break to do the dishes, which can be helpful and not so helpful. Can I get an amen if you have a child? We're told in verses 52 and 54 that Jesus sends his messengers, James and John, called Sons of Thunder, which is, I think, where Jesus gives them this nickname. Sent them ahead of them to a village in Samaria as a way to help prepare for, that, for his arrival. But the Samaritans responded by not receiving Jesus because his face is set towards Jerusalem. Luke tells us James and John's response in verse 54. Verse 54 says, And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? I love, I love that verse in all kinds of ways. Translated, do you want us to nuke them? There's a lot of back and forth discussion when it comes to understanding the deep animosity between the Jews and Samaritan relationship. 
far more and one, one which would take too long for me to explain here. But what I can say is this. One, hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans was fierce and longstanding. Much of it centered around things like conflicting ideas as to where worship should take place, either Mount Gerasene versus Jerusalem. Competing views of scripture and messianic expectations was a serious, serious issue. And most importantly, what constituted authentic faith before God was also a major issue. I guess given the intense history and animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, I have to confess from a human perspective or response, it makes sense to me after reading um, this verse, why, or excuse me, it makes sense to me, while after being rejected by the Samaritans, James and John would respond the way they did. This plan to barbecue the Samaritans wasn't an original idea hatched up by James and John. This idea of raining fire down, um, this idea of raining fire and judgment comes from Elijah. When he calls fire, when he calls down fire from heaven, as he and his and his, as he has this prophetic duel with the prophets of Baal. And also in 2 Kings uh, verse, or chapter 1, when he calls down fire from heaven two different times to burn up a band of soldiers who the king has sent to arrest them. The irony of James and John's comments is this. Prior to verse 54, in Luke chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus sends out 12 of his disciples and told them when encountering a town of inhospitality, just walk on. So James and John's response toward the Samaritans shows their oblivion of Jesus' message and the use of his authority. As one commentator wrote, they act as persons intoxicated with their own sense of power. Jesus quickly responds in verse 55 by rebuking them with a hard no. This is clearly not why Jesus came. He didn't come to kill, steal, and to nuke people. Instead, he came to save and rescue and show mercy to people. Which brings me to my third point and final, and final moment or episode within the text, which I call Sick Beats by Jesus and some random artist named Taylor Swift. I know what you're thinking. What in the world does Taylor Swift have to do with Jesus, let alone this morning's text? Well, let me try to answer that and not get fired at the same time. On August 18, 2014, Taylor Swift released her lead single from her fifth studio album entitled 1989, in which Swift marketed as her first pop album. The single spent 50 weeks, including four weeks at number one on the Billboard's Hot 100, and received numerous accolades, including favorite song at the 2015 People's Choice Award and three Grammy nominations at the 2015 Grammy Awards. Shake It Off is this up-tempo dance pop song that was inspired by the media scrutiny that Taylor Swift had experienced during her rise of stardom. The lyrics are about Swift's indifference to her detractors and their negative view of her image. In an interview with Rolling Stones in August 2014, Swift said this about the song's inspiration. I've, have, I've had every part of my life dissected 
When you live your life under that kind of scrutiny, you can either let it break you or you can get really good at dodging punches. And, one, and, one, and when one lands, you know how to deal with it. And I guess the way that I deal with it is to shake it off. Discussing the song's message with NPR in October 2014, Swift said that Shake It Off represented her more mature perspective from her previous single in 2010, Mean, which was also inspired by her detractors. According to Swift, if Mean was where she assumed victimhood, Shake It Off found her in a proactive stance to take back the narrative and to have a sense of humor about people who kind of get under her skin and not to let them get under her skin. Okay, so stay with me here. Looking at verse 55 and 56, we read, but he turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. To understand the entire picture of what's happening here, we need to reference back passages from Luke chapter 9, verse 5 and 10, verses 11. In the sending out of the disciples in the 72, Jesus instructs them by saying, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Even the dust of your town that clings to your feet wipe off against you. So here is my answer to the question, what in the world does Taylor Swift have to do with this morning's text? Here it is. Jesus was throwing down sick beats before Taylor Swift was even born. I've heard different preachers often say, Jesus' journey is okay to laugh. Jesus' journey is our journey. One commentator writes this, Luke makes it clear that following Jesus is related to joining him on the journey and the proclamation of the kingdom of God. So here's a little bit of something of what I've learned about traveling this journey. Lesson one. The journey is not easy. Which is why I guess Matthew wrote in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Lesson two about this journey. I've also learned and have by no means perfected it. As a follower, of Christ, a follower of Christ, sometimes when the journey is at its toughest, that's when God is doing his best work through us and in us. As a follower of Christ, sometimes when the journey is at its toughest, that's when God is doing his best work in us and through us. And lesson three, it actually matters to God how we handle and respond to various trials that come with following Jesus. I'm speaking less of the kind of trials that require more faith, like praying for God to heal a loved one, or added finances because you're about to go on a mission trip and you need a certain amount of money. I'm speaking specifically about how we respond to the way we treat people along the journey, both Christians and non-Christians. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, steadfastness, 
and will have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete nothing and lack nothing. I'm talking about being rejected, humiliated, unfairly treated, unwelcomed, or feeling ignored, intense disagreements with family, friends, and loved ones. Now, having said all this, in the words of Pastor Ethan, let me try and land this plane. I think, it's, I think the best way for me to do that is by sharing with you a quick story. A number of years ago, back in California, while I was a deanery youth director, which just means I was in charge of eight different youth groups within a deanery or area of our diocese, I met a particular student who was in his junior year of high school at the time. He was extremely likable, and we became friends almost immediately. I mentored and discipled him up until the beginning of his freshman year in college. After that, he went off to college, and I moved to a city a couple hours away, and we lost touch with one another. Halfway through his sophomore year of college, I randomly got a call from him. Broken and sounding frustrated, he shared with me that he was struggling with depression, and he had hit a place where he had decided to drop out of college and that he wasn't sure what to do with his life from there. After long talks with both he and his parents, I invited him to come and live with me for a short amount of time. I agreed to continue to mentor and disciple him while he worked some random job in hopes of, the fa in hopes of helping him to rebuild his confidence and figure out what God wanted him to do next. After a year he moved in, I met my wife, Adelia. Shortly after that, we began dating, and like most dating relationships, we spent as much time as we could together. Without warning, and seemingly out of nowhere, at least that's what Adelia and I thought, this young man, young man became unhinged. He started getting upset any time Adelia and I were together. He especially treated her with contempt. This kind of treatment went on for months. At times, it would take its toll on Adelia and Meyer's relationship. Eventually, I decided I needed to pull a James and John and nuke him. But Adelia felt this treatment, but Adelia felt his treatment of us was probably something deeper, and we needed to show him God's grace and mercy and to be patient with him. During most of Adelia's and my time dating, he never let up. It wasn't until a number of years ago that Adelia got a surprise letter in the mail from him. And this is what it said. Dear Adelia, hello. I hope that this letter finds you well and God's blessings flowing richly in your life. My birthday is in three days, and it causes me to reflect as well as be somewhat amazed at how much time has passed. When we first met, I was just entering the decades of my 20s. Now soon, I will be leaving it. Time does not heal all wounds, Time does not erase all hurts, injuries, and insults of yesterday. The only thing that it does is confession and forgiveness inspired and led by the Holy Spirit. To that end, to you do I wish to humbly prostrate my heart and will and make my confession, and in doing so hopefully make my amends. I praise God that though I am, though I am truly pig-headed, obstinate, and stupid, he nonetheless shows me grace by guiding my thoughts and teaching me. It truly amazes me. 
I share all this with you because a few weeks ago, as I started, as I sat meditating, God showed me how I'd been to you. God brought you into Steve's life, and I resented it. I was arrogant, proud, and treated you, my sister, in Christ with contempt and not the love I should have. Perhaps my worst sin is that after that, you continue to love me as Christ's own. And I've never, in my pride or shame, adequately ever thanked you for that. I remember the tears in your eyes and compassion in your face when I first came to grips with the reality of my depression at Student Mandate, which was a program that Adelia had started, kind of like YWAM in their gap year. Adelia, now I am older and by God's grace wiser and ever more broken. And I view you as a saint whose example God has placed in my life to teach me how to be more like him and to be closer to him. Thank you, thank you that while I was common clay, you were fine china. Where I was filth and darkness, in spite of that, you were light. I understand more than ever how hard it was for you. He ends his letter by saying this. I hope and pray that you will accept my confession and grant me forgiveness that I do sincerely ask of you. I could no more have written this than to take my next breath, for it truly was God who instructed me in this matter. But for its worth, I wanted to do it. Grace and peace. As I finish up my sermon this morning, let me share one last thought with you before I close. If, I were, if we're called to follow him on the journey, then I think it's evident through our gospel reading this morning. The journey is best traveled with grace and love than with fire and judgment. Let me say that again. The journey is best traveled with grace and love than with fire and judgment. What's epic concerning Jesus' response in verse 55 when he says to not nuke the Samaritan village is that later on we read in Acts chapter 9 about the receiving of the gospel in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It is my prayer for us here at Grace that we not only receive but also live out our mission statement here at Grace in which says, God's, great, God's free grace, which roots, excuse me, God's free grace, which roots us, moves us, and they reaches took us. your life, they could not take your.